Hello, Pacers fans. It's been a couple of weeks since we came to you after taking a week off for the All-Star break. And typically, we tape editions of the Sideline Guys powered by Gainbridge on Tuesday due to the schedule and the team's travel. We're taping a little bit later this week. So whether you're listening to us on a Wednesday, a Thursday, or perhaps even later than that, we appreciate you picking us back up on your Podcast listening habits alongside Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. Was expecting and excited to start this podcast, breaking down what was just a thrilling night in Dallas on Tuesday night. And we'll get there, Jeremiah. Uh, the person I'm about to bring up would want us to get there, uh, but we would be remiss if we did not start with the really tragic and sad news that was uh, passed along this morning, Wednesday morning, uh, that Pacers' longtime PR man who had retired last year. Uh, David Benner passed away. He was born in 1955, was the longtime PR man for the Pacers, somebody that you and I got to know very well. People that are in that role, that PR role, they oftentimes um, are kind of under the spotlight. They are not somebody that's in the public eye very often. Uh, Oftentimes, PR people for NBA teams, uh, the fans don't know exactly who they are, and, and that's a lot of their job. But I think Many Pacers fans here that are listening to this, especially our diehards, I think many of our casual fans as well, know of the name David Benner, maybe even know um, a fair amount of what David Benner did in his career and who he was. Even if you didn't get a chance to know him, he, of course, had a famously close relationship with Reggie Miller that dates back uh, to the 90s. But certainly we just give our thoughts and prayers to his family and his close friends on what's a tough day in the organization. It is, Pat. It's one of those days with some sadness when you walk around and and think about uh, the loss, but also you mix some of that sadness with an occasional smile, thinking back to memories, whether it's something that happened in a work environment or perhaps off the court during a road trip, and just a little bit of satisfaction um, from what I would say is a job well done, a life well led. I mean, David Benner um, was someone that I looked up to before I knew him because I was someone in growing up in Indiana that religiously read the newspaper and the people that were either writing about the teams that I admired or talking about them on television or radio. Those were the people that I emulated, that I wanted to, you know, kind of try to follow in the footsteps once I kind of figured out that playing would not be an option. And I can remember, I think my first interactions with David Benner on a a professional level might have been coming from Terre Haute to Cincinnati for a Pacers training camp. And I will admit that it was maybe a little bit selfish at the time in that, uh, sure, yeah, they let me go cover Pacers training camp, uh, but I also had some friends in Cincinnati. So I wanted to try to make a work trip and a, and a pleasure trip. And uh, I was invited in like I covered the team all the time. And I got to to meet him and, and interview um, some players. I think Isaiah Thomas was the coach of the team at that time. And I tweeted that out today in that. He treated reporters in Terre Haute just like he treated um, ESPN personalities or writers from the Washington Post. And he was fair. Uh, he respected the wishes of the organization. He protected the players. But he was also someone that when you went around to different circles 
around the league, you saw how much respect and admiration there was for David Benner in each of the stops uh, on the NBA journey. And so I know there are a lot of really passionate and moving tributes being shared on social media, even in um, newspaper or media accounts today. And I invite you to read those and I invite you to, uh, you know, think about think about David and his family and the Pacers organization on a day like today. Yeah, I got here when I was just 24 and I was very much in the fake it till you make it mindset. I didn't know a whole lot. I was kind of a a dumb kid when I uh, got this job and being able to sit next to him 41 nights a year for uh, the six seasons that I was able to was just an absolute massive advantage for me personally, me and my young career, um, just watching the way he handled things, how he handled the media, how he handled the players. And it's a thankless job in a lot of regards. We have, you know, three great PR people and two of them um, were there for David Benner, Chrissy Myers and and Wes Kaminsky um, were there um, for David Benner and know him very well. And Michael Preston heads up that group. Now it's a thankless job. It's, 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 and you're kind of a liaison. You're an in-between of the team, of the players, and then of the media. And you're kind of, I would assume, always trying to find uh, a ground where you're being fair to the players, but also fair to media. And I thought he struck that middle ground so perfectly. Um, the, the way the players admired him, respected him, frankly, were friends with him. And later in his career, you're talking about a 30-year age gap in there, but we're still friends with him. And if you would have just known that, you might have thought, okay, well, this guy is somebody that was far on the players only side of the PR spectrum. And he probably didn't get along with a whole lot of media, yet the opposite couldn't be more true. He was somebody that was universally respected. The Pacers PR staff not too long ago was named uh, the, the top PR staff in the NBA when he was heading that group. And I think it really just speaks to him and speaks to his craft and his personality and the type of guy he was uh, to be able to do both of those things and to be able to be respected in every different realm, whether it was the players, whether it was a rookie coming in, whether it was somebody with the spotlight of a Reggie Miller or a Paul George, a Jermaine O'Neal, uh, whether it was a national reporter or whether it was uh, a, a sideline broadcaster at age 24 who was just stepping into the first time. He always treated you with respect and um, just a, a tremendous person, a tremendous PR professional, a franchise icon and somebody that's really going to be missed. I mean, as as, as news had passed along of his health, I don't think um, too many people were totally shocked, but it's still it, it's hit me harder, JJ, than I thought it was going to just because of how I think powerful he was, how important he's been to this organization. Um, and, and just thinking back to all of those key moments that he was a part of within the franchise, I think it just is such a profound showing of all the different areas he touched within the organization. And I do think it's such a, um, not that it makes anything better, but to think that last season he was able to have that farewell season where he knew he was retiring, but so many people got an opportunity to tell them, tell him what they, what he meant to them and for him to say goodbye and for them to say goodbye to him. Not that at the time, you know, they would never talk to him again, but like he had that 
so so many times someone passes and all of the great things are said about that person and you almost wish sometimes while the person was alive they could have could have heard that right and he had kind of that opportunity which is so rare and I uh, just in reading some of the accounts today um, as he was going through some of his treatment he acknowledged what a great life that he had and he felt bad for those people that had the same illness and treatment undergoing the same treatments that did not get to experience what he did so um it, the farewell tour the farewell season of david benner will remember all the stops i invite you to check out his twitter account as well for some of the photos and what i just was scrolling through it a short time ago and, and i think it was the final stop on the tour he took a photo with rick carlisle and i think that's fitting in that you know rick carlisle's back with the organization rick carlisle spent so much time with David Benner during his first stops with the team, first as an assistant, then with a head coach. And I think it's so great to have someone like Rick Carlisle back and as the head coach. And he's a little bit of a bond to the past and he can, he can share stories now moving forward as can many of the people currently traveling. And I know, um, you know, we've had Mark Boyle on recently and, and we might have him on uh pregame show Thursday, not, you know, still formulating our plans for that and if he'll be up for that. But uh, there are so many people still with the organization and will be for a number of years moving forward, yourself included, Pat, that can tell people about David Benner and kind of what he meant to the organization and how he did his job. Because that is that is special what you said, that six years you could sit right next to him. And I, I think that's a tribute to you, Pat. David made the seating chart. If he didn't want to sit by you, it, he would have moved you. <laughs> He would he would have moved me and and uh, I very much appreciate the time I got you know next to him and just kind of learning from him. We do obviously very different jobs. What a PR person does and a broadcaster does is very different, but we're in constant regular contact and just seeing a, a professional who's done it for so long and somebody um, who's done it at such a high level and is as we talked about earlier just revered by everybody in every circle. It just speaks so well to the type of person, the type of employee he was, and um, you know the name the name. Benner is synonymous in Indianapolis sports media. Bill and David were writers and David went on to do PR and Bill, um, you know, actually came back and, and worked for the Pacers before being in retirement. But I know you agree with me on a couple of these statements. One is we, we send all of our thoughts and our prayers to the Benner family, those who were uh, closer to him than we were, his close friends, his close family. I know this is a tough day for everybody, especially those people. And we want to wish uh, everybody well and strength and hope that the good memories are able to uh, sustain because as you noted as we spent here 10 minutes talking about there were so many good memories and he got more out of the 67 68 years of life than most people uh, will get even if they live um, into their 80s or 90s and so uh, rest in peace David Benner we appreciate very much uh, everything that you've done for us personally for from the organization and um, we'll look forward to celebrating a life well lived and as somebody that is in the or was in the PR field for a sports team he would not want the spotlight on him he would not want the attention on him it is very well deserved we will uh, have a tribute as a part of our radio pregame show we're also still formulating those plans I know you will on Thursday as well. So for those listening here um, before Thursday night's game, make sure to tune in on TV, listen on radio. I think it's going to be, um, you know, a couple of shows that you aren't going to want to miss. And he also wouldn't want us spending 45 minutes on a podcast talking about him, JJ. So let's transition here. You are in San Antonio and the Pacers are 2-0 and on this road trip. 
And a whole lot has changed really in the last week plus. I think when you go back to the second half of that Chicago game and the game ended and and I don't want to speak for you, but I kind of had the thought, all right, you know what? You're ending on a high note here. You've looked probably the best that you have in a month plus in that second half against Chicago, but now you're going to have a week off. And A, if you found anything there, would it carry over? Uh, And B, if it did, how significant could it? Well, you lose the game against Boston, but it was one that was really competitive. I thought one of the better pacer efforts of the season. And then you go into Orlando and you win pretty convincingly. And you have one of the weirder nights you'll ever see uh, in the NBA on Tuesday night. But bottom line is you beat the Dallas Mavericks. You still want to see more. I'm only talking about a three and a half game sample size here, if you will. So you want to see uh, that the Pacers are able to sustain this for more than three and a half games. Uh, but it really is a good sign and it's a welcome sign after what had been such a struggle without Tyrese Halliburton and then in those first handful of games since he had returned. Just prior to the All-Star break, Pat, I asked some of the players in some interviews that we conducted about the best version of the Pacers, and I referenced that stretch from just before Christmas until just after New Year's when they won 8 of 10. And I said, you know, I asked them, how is this team the the best version of itself? What has to happen? And you get you get some different answers, and a lot of it's, you know, unselfishness, playing fast, the ball movement. But I do think if you small sample size, let's say you go from and we can pick the parameters so we can uh, kind of fine tune it just how we want. But let's say halftime of the final game before the break against Chicago and then you include Boston and Orlando and San Antonio, you are starting to see that best version of the Pacers and everyone is healthy. Everyone is available. And so Rick Carlisle does have a number of options. The only difference I think now that you didn't have in December would probably be Jordan Wara's contributions. And we should not discount that they are impactful, but with Tyrese Halliburton fully healthy in top shape and condition and just a full season of chemistry now with a starting lineup that has changed a little bit in time. You know, Rick Carlisle, I think is one of this team to get off the better start. So even in that game, I think before the all-star break, you saw, T.J. McConnell jump into the starting lineup. Andrew Nemhard come off the bench. But then in the three games since, it's gone back to the familiar starting five. I kind of thought there was a chance, even though you can think about January and early February and say, yeah, it's just not going to happen this season. I kind of, during the All-Star break, was thinking, what's to say they can't go on another run? Because I don't think anyone thought before that Boston-Miami road trip that they would win both of those games and they could win eight of 10 against a challenging schedule. So why can't it happen now? The players are the same. The schedule was, even though a little bit road heavy, there were really opportunities to get some success. And so you win a game, uh, you, you, you basically play the team with the best record in the NBA at the time, and you feel like you should have won in Boston. You went on the road, which had been, impossible to do for two months and then you follow that up now with the game you didn't maybe close out the way you would like from an offensive perspective but you built that lead and you got a few critical stops and you won a game no one expected against Dallas a team that really needs every single game it can get to even you know I say avoid the play-in but they're not the Mavericks are 
they could get to 11th and if they had another bad week. So they needed that win. It was on their home court. And Luka Doncic was playing phenomenal. And you still won. So with that happening, anything is somewhat possible now. And you play San Antonio. And you've got Chicago coming up. And then you've got a couple of home games. I did say before the break, let's see where this team is after 10 games. So now through three, you're two and one. Anything can still happen. And I do just like the fact that they were able to get back to, in this small sample size, the best version of themselves. What do you yeah. think the best version of this team is, Pat? Yeah, I think it's the version you know that you saw in the first 41 games, which is one that is centered around Tyrese Halliburton. But Tyrese Halliburton, I think one thing that's really impressed me in his last two games is how he's been the two different versions of himself that I think as you start to project on what the Pacers can be longer term, I'm talking two, three, four years down the road, you're going to need games like Orlando uh, where he has, he only takes nine shots, has 15 points, but has 14 assists. The Pacers needed him to be a distributor on that night. And he was, and he's always going to be a good passer. He's always going to be on a, a distributor on Tuesday against Dallas. They needed him to score. And what did he do? He had 32 points. Now, he also had six assists. He had seven rebounds. But it was Tyrese Halliburton, the shot maker and the creator that took over against Dallas. And to me, that is maybe the biggest piece of good news. Now, I had no worry about Tyrese Halliburton. He's the guy as long as he's healthy. I I worry about his health from time to time. But besides his health, he's the guy I worry about the absolute least. So from that perspective, Seeing how he played in these last couple of games has been uplifting, but it's not shocking. And I think there's just it's something that's unquantifiable, but it's just a you know it and you feel it when you see it. This team has kind of a a swagger about it or a style of play that when you watch them night in and night out, um, you can pretty often tell whether it's that version of the first 41 games and what's been the last three or four, or whether it's that stretch in the middle. A lot of it has to do with the defense. Um, and, and when you say, what's the, what's the best version of this team? Well, it has to be one that is playing well enough defensively and is rebounding well enough. These are two areas that are not going to be strengths this season. Um, we're just too far into the season to hope that that's going to dramatically change. But you do have a lot of other areas where you can make up for it. And then bottom line here, and, and I don't totally know how to how I judge the last five minutes of that game against Dallas uh, because the Pacers didn't hit a shot in the final six minutes and 10 seconds. So that wasn't necessarily good. Um, but you were in a close game. You were in a clutch game. And when you look at the best version of this team, frankly, the version of this team in the first 41 games, I would argue, and the version of this team with Tyrese Halliburton back that was struggling pre-Bulls game not as dramatic as I think it seemed or the record showed, but they were playing in a ton of close games and they were winning a ton of close games in the first half of the season. And they just weren't winning those clutch games. They were two and nine uh, at one point since the Halliburton injury. Um, and they were 16 and 10 in those clutch games to start the season. The Rick Carlisle talks about it all the time. The margins are small when you're going on winning streaks. Like we went on uh, and I'm speaking for Car- in Carlisle's words here, when we were going on, winning streaks like they were going on, they were oftentimes winning a lot of these games that were all really close, but they were doing just enough down the stretch and they were executing very well in the final minutes. So all you're not all of a sudden going to have a team that's going to start blowing people out. That's unrealistic. At least regularly, it's unrealistic for this season, but I think this team has to be one that plays well down the stretch in games. 
again, I don't totally know how you judge that Dallas game because you had a double-digit lead and you didn't play well at all offensively, but you did enough to get the win. And that's the bottom line. And so I think, you know, the, the jury is maybe still a little bit out in terms of can the Pacers get back to that team that was regularly winning in the clutch earlier in the year. Um, but against Dallas, they did enough. They held Dallas scoreless for the final two minutes and 30 seconds. So I thought that was a really good sign as well. And now, you know, you've kind of got a situation here coming up. This isn't an exact comparison, but it reminds me a little bit of what uh, we saw with IU. They have a huge road win at Purdue. The Pacers just have this huge road win in Dallas. And then they've got a game coming up. Now, Iowa's a good team. I I understand that. But uh, San Antonio, now you're on the road against San Antonio. Do you avoid that letdown? Can you avoid that letdown? And the Pacers are, frankly, uh, a team right now that can't afford to not have either their A or close to their A game and get wins on the road. So, I'm I'm honestly really intrigued with how Thursday goes. Um, if the Pacers take care of business on Thursday, I think it's going to be another significant sign that they have returned to their earlier portion of the season. Um, but, you know, you always have to be worried about that letdown. And the Pacers just recently got out of a slump where they really, really struggled on the road. So it's one of those games where there's a lot of different avenues you could see it taking. And I think even against a team that might end up with the worst record in the NBA. And if not, they'll be close. Um, I think you can take a lot away from how Thursday night goes. From an individual perspective, Pat, I think we should should wrap up Miles Turner's month of February. I know you've been tweeting out some impressive statistics, uh, you know, stretches of games, but the month of February was fantastic. This coming off, it was the end of January, correct? When he signed his new contract? Correct. So he responded in the best way possible. I mean, think about this. So many people think of playing for a contract in your contract year, and it was an outstanding first half for Miles Turner. But then to sign that contract, to get that you know, long-term security, and to know he's going to be with the team moving forward, and then continue to play and to play really well. I mean, some of the things he is doing offensively. I mean, I, I'll go back to the beginning of the season. And I I brought this up with Rick Carlisle a couple of games ago, but you remember that when he would have, I think he had that good game in Washington. And then not long after that, Rick Carlisle was asked a question about Miles Turner's offense. And he, he kind of wanted to steer it to the defense because I don't think he wanted to put that expectation to where Miles Turner has to score points for him to feel like he is productive or having a good game because defense is his thing. He said it so many times. He's, you know, one of the best in the world at what he does in terms of shot blocking and rim protection. But there is enough of a sample size here with Miles Turner as the five, with Tyrese Halliburton as his point guard, to say his offensive contributions are consistent. They're needed by this team. And (laughs) what he's doing in the post, it's just a different player than what we saw at the start of his career. A completely different player. In fact, that has been just a massive and monumental swing from a weakness to I'm not going to sit here and pretend like Miles Turner is a post up first player. But you put a player who's a guard or a small wing on him and he's regularly taking advantage of that. And I remember we, we could probably dig in the archives and go back to conversations where 
uh, we were saying, look, it's it's not going to be something where he can regularly take advantage of that situation, but he has to keep it from being a weakness. And I would argue not only has he kept it from being a weakness, but he's turned it into a strength. Turner since February or excuse me, January 24th is averaging 21 and a half points, eight and a half rebounds and two blocks per game. And maybe the most significant numbers I haven't pointed out here, which are his efficiency numbers, 55 percent from the field. Excellent. Forty two percent from the three. Excellent. And 82 percent from the free throw line. Also excellent, especially when you consider his position. So he's putting up these type of numbers and he's not needing the ball a ton. And he's, of course, providing that elite level of rim protection. Uh, Frankly, these are, in my opinion, kind of unquestioned all star numbers. Now, it's been a month and four days and. I understand the all-star team and the all-star game has already happened. Uh, But these are the type of numbers that if you put them up for the course of the first two and a half months of the season, you're in the all-star game without, I think at least, now it depends on on, on your peers and how everybody around you is playing and, and injuries and stuff like that. But like you would look at these numbers and you wouldn't blink twice. And so he has played um, just tremendously since uh, early on. A few of those games were before technically signing that extension, but I do think it has provided him a level of security that has helped boost his play, just kind of helped boost his confidence. I think that was an important thing to get done. And I would say, you know, look, Halliburton is, of course, important to this team, but Halliburton, we saw in the Pacers last year when they struggled, you know, he was he was playing well and he's had games where he's played well and the Pacers have struggled. But he almost always is at Tyrese a high level and you need at least one other guy to be playing at that high of a level with him. And I would say that the consistent play from miles Turner, I don't know if it's been talked about enough. You know, this is a guy that for most of his career was looked at as inconsistent and night in night out for a month plus now, and really the whole season, like on balance, he's just had a strikingly consistent year, but especially the last month plus, uh, the last handful of games, he's been strong. And, and if you even want to parse that down to an even smaller sample size, in his last three games, uh, Turner is shooting 72% from the field and 69% from the three-point line. Now, you had the 13 of 15 game in there where he had 40 points and was the most efficient 40-point score in history. Uh, but at, even when you go beyond that, he then followed that up with an 11 for 19 game, and he was 10 for 13 Uh, against Dallas. So this is a guy that doesn't need the ball 20, 25 times. He doesn't need to shoot 20, 25 times to get there and to be averaging over 20 points per game, considering how relatively few shots he's taking. um, I I actually don't think it's been discussed enough. Like I think the play of Miles Turner over the last month plus, and some of that is it gets broken up by the all-star break. Some of it, the Pacers didn't have a great record during, Um, but he's playing as well as I would say is anybody, but maybe the top couple of elite bigs in the NBA right now. And I'll give JMV of 107.5, the fan credit for this, because I had not thought about it, but what do you think about kind of launching the campaign for miles Turner, most improved player? It's definitely worthy of discussion. This is a year where I can't think of two better candidates, at least at the top in terms of, uh, Laurie Markinen and what he's done. I mean, right. Markinen's had a yeah. tremendous season, and Shea Gilgis Alexander has had a tremendous season. But I think, I think just on principle, Miles Turner has had, outside of just a couple of just astronomical seasons by those two, that in a lot of ways came out of nowhere. 
he has to be at least in the discussion, even if it's understood in the discussion that he's probably not going to pass those two. I think that's a fair statement. And I, Markinen, uh would seem like uh, has a very good chance of winning. I think Shea Gilders Alexander was still pretty good last year. And, you know, sometimes when you hype someone up for most improved, you're almost saying, well, last year they were no good, or they, maybe it was an injury that happened. Sometimes that was the old comeback player of the year award. But for what he is doing, numbers-wise, so many of them best of his career, but just changing the way he, he is playing, I definitely think he deserves some some consideration. And while it doesn't seem like he's getting as much mention in that all-defensive team, I still want to make sure people remember uh, what he does defensively. And it's not just the blocks. It's it's the way he's able to switch and the way he communicates. Uh, to be able to get some, some more recognition in that area, the Pacers as as a team probably have to do bit, a bit better defensively. And, and some of their defensive rating numbers are still lower than you would like. So that may not happen this year. But let's even spin it forward and say so much anticipation for All-Star 2024 and hoping that the Pacers are well represented on that weekend. Um, maybe early in the season you can start seeing how Miles Turner can play and how the Pacers, if they could get off to a good start, and maybe you could throw his name in the list. I mean, we'll see what happens. But if you're having front court players – and you mentioned you're comparing centers even, and I know it's front court and back court for the all-star, but he is playing in that, in that top five level in terms of uh, some of the two way centers in the league. Yeah. And, and whether it's a correct way for it to happen or not, I, I think there's a reality that, you know, it's, it's almost like in college sports where <clears throat> there's a preseason ranking of those teams and then everybody bases their performance off of where that preseason ranking was, which to me sometimes isn't always fair because it depends on where people just think that you will be at the beginning of the season to determine where you are in those first few weeks. I, I think for a player like Turner, who had been hurt the last couple of years, who struggled with some inconsistency, who's been uh, was playing in his non-natural position, he came into the <clears throat> he came into the year without much attention or much of a spotlight at all. And so I think if, as long as he can stay healthy, I, I don't know if he's going to finish the season here in these final 18 games at 22 and nine and two. Um, and, and on these efficiency numbers, it would be tough too, but he's done it already for a month plus. But I think if he could finish the season strong, he then comes into next year as more on the radar for these type of things. As long as he stays healthy, he'll have had a full year. He'll have had a really strong year. And I think then you go into hopefully next season and people are considering him right off the bat for those type of things. And then I think he sets himself up for those type of situations. So uh, we'll see. It's been, I think if you look at the storylines of the season so far, um, his level of play has maybe been the biggest one. Now I would still contest that Tyrese Halliburton in the next step forward that he's taken has been the most important storyline for the big term future of the Pacers. Uh, but in terms of you did not know what you were going to get out of Miles Turner coming into the year. He's, as we just discussed, he's been hurt. He's been playing out of position. Um, he's struggled with consistency at times throughout his career. This is close to realistic best case scenario as you could have gotten from him. Um, and, you know, we had a podcast. We sat down with him. If, if you want to go back and listen or watch that, you can. It was about a month ago. It was the day he signed, which I think was the, the very end of January or 
maybe just into early February. Um, and he had a chance to talk about all of that. But it's been great to see it continue to come to fruition in the month of February as well um, and continue to kind of anchor the Pacers in the middle. Uh, while you have been on this road trip, you got to uh, partake in an experience that I know was a first for you. It also was a first for somebody like Mark Boyle, who's been here for 35 years. So that tells you how unique of an experience this was. Uh, why don't you share maybe how the Pacers got a little bit of motivation before playing in that Dallas game a little bit uh, earlier in the day? Well, think about this, Pat, 41 road games, every road game, depending upon the circumstances, does not include a game day shoot around. But what we've noticed is that this team and, and this staff likes to have the players get up, get the, the blood flowing a little bit, get moving on a game day when the situation calls for it, especially on the road. At home, not as much. I think they're, they get their work done at practice. And if they need to, they have a, a walkthrough before a game. But it just seemed like a normal day of getting ready to go to American Airlines Center for a game day shoot around and the bus didn't go that direction got on the highway and it was kind of fun to be a part of a group that uh, I don't know if sometimes if you're in a car and maybe uh, your significant other or maybe back in the day your parents would say it's a surprise where we're headed that's what it was um, for the travel party in Dallas and you, you pull into this neighborhood and all of a sudden the bus stops and you see some friendly faces in the uh, Pacer security team and you're at Buddy Heald's house. And, uh, you know, Buddy's one of these personalities. What I've said about him in some interviews recently, uh, it's just you didn't know this about Buddy when he was playing in Sacramento. And, and even you thought he had a good personality. Obviously, you saw that in Oklahoma. But uh, he's exceeded all expectations to me on and off the court. And so Buddy invited the team to his gym, which is at his house in the Dallas area. And uh, it was it was awesome. I mean, it was one of those things I've, I had kind of mixed emotions, not mixed in, in nothing bad, but how cool it was for Buddy. But then also thinking back to our podcast, Pat, when he told us the story about how he had to sell himself for his opportunity to get to play college basketball. Remember that where he went to some of the um, the AAU workouts, maybe the uh, the tryout circuit and had a junior college coach who gave him an opportunity before he was able to go play at Oklahoma and look where he is now and look what basketball, where basketball has taken him through hard work. He's not the most athletic, high flying. Uh, he's not super tall by NBA standards. Um, he is gifted uh, for sure. Uh, but he's also gifted as a shooter. And that is something that happens only with, with hard work. And you saw sort of the fruits of that labor in that gym, in that facility, and in that house. And you saw his teammates really bond with him and show their appreciation for just having the opportunity to see that. Buddy, Buddy enjoyed being able to share that with his team. And so his family was, was kind of milling around. His mom was there, his daughters. Uh, but then there was a moment where it was still a normal shoot-around. Things got serious. They had to get down to business. They were discussing how they were planning to attack the Mavericks and maybe even more importantly, how they were planning to defend the Mavericks. So it was pretty cool that you walk in, you think this is just a cool field trip on uh, in the middle of a, a long week on the road. But then it was business and it was basketball. And that's kind of what Buddy uses that gym for. He's, he's working out, he's shooting. He told me that he gets in trouble from his family in the summer because he spends too much, too much time 
in the basketball gym and not in the actual house because it's two <laughs> it's it, it's two buildings separated by a pool and you can always look over from inside the windows of the gym and see the pool and you know the amenities outside um but sometimes they got to call buddy in and say hey hang out with us in in the actual house as well but uh, that was not the least bit surprising to hear that story um but it was a good change of pace and it was uh i'm not sure that i could give credit for that for the how the pacers played they could have had a shoot around at the american airlines center and also played well and it did help that they had uh, a couple of days off it was just a great three days in dallas the weather was awesome You've got Miles Turner, obviously, with his roots there, and 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 Rick Carlisle as well, and and I know Jenny Busick and Mike Weiner had some family in town because they had spent a considerable amount of time in Dallas. So it was just a fun few days in Dallas, capped off by uh, the the game day shoot around at Buddy's house, and then a win over the Mavericks. Do you think Rick Carlisle had any pull in the schedule to get two days off between game one and game two in Dallas? That had to be like he had to have seen that when the schedule came out and just been thrilled. Right. I mean, that's that's the perfect scenario for him. I joked with him actually on Sunday about that. And I don't know that the I think the NBA has a lot bigger priorities in terms of their <laughs> schedule and fitting everything in with arena availability than to. Uppies, uh, Rick Carlisle's request. It worked out well. And I even, I made a similar comment to Kelly Krostoff, uh before the team left saying, I'm, I'm sure um, you're going to be making that Texas trip. And she did join the team in Dallas and is in San Antonio as well. So it, it did work out well. It comes at a perfect time. I mean, we, the fans have seen this team maybe come to life a little bit on the basketball court, but March is to me the best time in the, in the in the year it doesn't matter the reason i mean i love high school basketball i love college basketball i love march in the nba when teams are jockeying for position it gets a little bit warmer maybe you have an occasional afternoon game at some point but uh you know the the change of pace and having that time off in dallas i think it was a really good thing and i look forward to seeing if the positive vibes can carry over to San Antonio and then Chicago, even though it won't be as warm and, and sunny in Chicago at the end of the week, I don't think. Yeah, I think you guys are fine. You've been in Texas for like five days, so I'm not feeling bad. You're for not you. feeling bad about that one? No. I'm not. I'm not. And uh, I just like to imagine, as you were telling the story, which we've had the chance to see pictures and video and part of that uh, on the TV broadcast last night. But as you're telling the story, I just really like to imagine a 30-year-old Buddy Heald uh, having his mom scolding him for not leaving the basketball court to come in for dinner. I don't know if that's exactly how it plays out, but that's what I really like to imagine. And Buddy has just such a youthful spirit about him that, of course, he's not the only guy with a with a basketball hoop indoors in the NBA, uh, but he might be one of only a handful with a, a near full court. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a survey of that that exists somewhere. But, of course... It's Buddy Heald, the guy who goes and grabs the ball at a timeout and goes and shoots it when you're not really supposed to. The guy that uh, shoots a wadded up paper ball into a fake hoop of arms stretched out into a circle from one of the stack guys. Of course, it's Buddy Heald that has the basketball hoop and full court in his house so he can just constantly continue to get shots up. I, I am, it is just so energizing seeing how passionate he is about that, how youthful he is about it. Um, 
I love broadcasting. It is my passion. But man, like I don't know if anybody loves anything as much as Buddy Heel does with an empty gym and the ability to just shoot. And uh, there's something just so genuine about all of that. And I'm going to bring up a commercial that will probably predate you, Pat. But it did get me thinking of the vision of Buddy's mom or wife uh, at one side and calling to Buddy. Buddy, where's that boy? Come in for dinner, and I'm going to bring up a Farm Bureau Insurance, Indiana Farm Bureau Insurance commercial from when I was a kid, and it was an Oscar Robertson commercial. And it's so similar because Oscar didn't have money for a basketball, and he shot a pop can into a rim in the driveway. And it was night nighttime, and, and Oscar's mom was calling him in. It's my favorite commercial of all time. And, uh, you know, with Buddy shooting the wadded-up paper into – a makeshift basket. It's just like what Oscar in that commercial would do. So you can't even find that commercial anywhere. I'd love to see it. And if anyone has a, a copy of it, uh, it was one of the classics and there were some great ones back in the day. And if you're, uh, you know, a basketball fan of a certain age, you would, you know what I'm talking about, but we could recreate the Oscar Robertson commercial with, with buddy. Where's that boy? Come on inside. It's time <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's sometimes our legality issues with that, but I would love to see any sort of remake uh, of that with Buddy. I think it would be very appropriate. Uh, along along those lines, at least to a degree, uh, you didn't by chance happen to partake or be an observer in what, if I understood this correctly, I'm, I'm listening to his post-game press conference, but if I understood this correctly, uh, the walkthrough in the hotel ballroom in Orlando, you weren't there by chance, were you? I was not. Did you happen to hear what Rick Carlisle said about that? Uh, refresh my memory. I did hear him talking about it. Well, he said somebody asked him about the fact that the Pacers had 19 more assists than Orlando. And I, I don't want to overplay this. I don't want to misconstrue what he said, um, because it's it's not like he said he created this game. And then all of a sudden it caused the Pacers to have one of their better nights in franchise history in terms of their own assists and keeping opponents down. But he did seem oh, to they suggest didn't have a bas- they didn't have a basketball, right? Yes, that they didn't have a basketball. So they had a water, <laughs> a half full water bottle. And and again, I'm just listening to a press conference that I wasn't there. So I'm trying to be totally fair with what he said. But my understanding was he at least felt like that walkthrough was at least a little bit impactful in their big <laughs> night. And what he said was they had a water bottle that was half full of water. And he basically told, as they were doing the walkthrough, to keep moving the water bottle until something good happens. And I asked Boyle, he wasn't there. You guys maybe are not privy to uh, such developments. But nonetheless, uh, I found that both amusing, uh, a little insightful, intriguing. And hey, whatever works. Like if 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 tossing around if, if in late February and early March, if tossing a water bottle around as a basketball and going to Buddy Heald's personal gym gets the job done, it's what gets the job done, right? I think that brings up a bigger point and a, a bigger picture topic, something that I think is worth sharing. And it is 100 percent accurate. And you know, we don't see the walkthroughs, shoot arounds. Uh, usually I do watch, but. It's a credit to Rick Carlisle. Think of all of his experience in this league as a player, as an assistant, and as a head coach. And things that he may have learned, lessons he has taken, things he's carried away, changes he's made. He He's made, I think, a number of changes into his style. And, and what you're bringing up is just a little change of pace, uh, keeping things light, 
he brought this up before the game in Dallas. So I'm not sharing any, you know, personal uh, private information. But in that time off in Dallas, he invited the travel party uh, to his place for a dinner. And then there was a team with players function um, at a restaurant in Dallas on Monday night. And that's a great sign. And sure, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel uh, part of the team. It helps me develop relationships, not just with players, but with staff members that, you know, you can get yourself caught up in just saying hi and kind of doing your own thing because we all have different responsibilities on the road. But that brings everybody together. And so think about that in addition to the, the widely reported Buddy Heald shoot around. But the trip also had the, the ballroom incident with the water bottle in Orlando. And then a couple of evening activities as a group that you could not say are mandatory, but I don't know that any player at the team dinner on Monday was not there. I mean, that was really impressive. And it was a lot of laughs. And I think actually I would like to um, recommend at some point in the coming days, Pacer social media will be releasing a fun poll of all-time NBA starting fives that came out of the team dinner. And so I'll just I'll, I'll leave that as a little bit of a tease, but these are all <laughs> things we're talking about that aren't related to slow starts or, you know, coming back from a deficit or maybe even uh, having a big halftime lead. They're off the court, they're off the court activities, but they help to me teams play well. They help teams rally win behind or pull out close wins in tough environments. It goes a long way. And it, there are only 19 games left in this season. And this is, to me, Pat, one of those seasons, despite what happened in January and early February, that I'm, I'm not in a hurry to see come to an end. And I get that same feeling from the players. So I really am interested to see if some of these positive vibes and this mojo that we're talking about, if it can continue. I don't know what the next random – uh, shoot around or off the court meeting or dinner or appearance might be, but I'm guessing we may we may see another one of those, and they do nothing but build camaraderie um, with players and staff members and coaches, and I think they do nothing but bring people together. And I really need to shout out the staff and everyone that has done what they've done to kind of make some of these things happen. Yeah, no doubt. And and as you were talking about that, another kind of dynamic here struck me a little bit, which as it relates to Rick Carlisle, when he was done talking about uh, the great water bottle run walkthrough of of Saturday, uh, he he had a quote where he said, uh, one of one of the championship skills we're trying to build is the ability to play a free flowing game at a high level. And he went on to reference a point that I thought was kind of interesting, which is. The best teams in the NBA, um, the coaches aren't constantly barking out play calls. And, and really, you don't see that in the NBA much at all. But if you think about the late 90s, early mid 2000s, late 2000s, even early you know 2010s, I mean, how often was uh, George Hill looking over at Frank Vogel for a play call and for a coach that maybe even won a championship doing a lot of that? I think it really speaks to... I think you probably have two types of people and two types of coaches that are successful. Uh, the first type of coach is maybe somebody that has success and then feels like they had success because of his coaching style and can't change and probably struggles to adapt to a more modern game 
as he gets later in his career. And then you have the people, um, you know, Greg Popovich fits into this as well, that are able to understand the adjustments of the game, um, move with it on the fly. And just hearing him make those comments, I thought was really telling because I don't know. I wasn't in Dallas and um, I was a little bit younger and certainly not in this job when he was here for his previous stops. But I'm not totally sure Rick Carlisle is making those same comments uh, 15 years ago or so. And so, you know, whether whether it's moving the whether it's moving the water bottle around the ball room or something more serious as it relates to trying to integrate a culture with this team. You you need to win. And, and look, we don't know where this season is going to end. And this is going to be kind of one of my final points as we look ahead. We're in a fascinating point right now, at least when you compare it to previous seasons, because last year at this point, you pretty much knew that when you hit 82, the year was going to be over. A couple of years ago, you seemed destined for that play-in tournament. Previous years before that, the Pacers had a nice little run where you knew the playoffs was going to happen and you didn't know what seed, but you, you were pretty confident that you were going to be playing uh, past that final game on a Sunday. This year, there's just so many different avenues that this season could take. And realistically, for somebody like Rick Carlisle, he probably won't win coach of the year because he oftentimes have to, at bare minimum, make the playoffs. But in reality, you have to be one of the top few teams in the NBA or at least uh, a top eight or nine team in the league as a whole. So that probably won't happen. But the coaching job that he has done, I think those who follow the league closely have done a nice job of narrating this. But I really don't think it can be overstated what he has done this year and how he has um, put this group together and how they have molded and their chemistry and um, really the season that we've seen. And we don't know exactly how fairy book that story is going to be. For a while, it looked like that fairy tale story was ending pretty rapidly. Um, and now it's right back on the upward climb. But it's it's just it kind of struck me this morning as I was just kind of racking my brain of things to talk about on this podcast. There are so many directions these final 19 games could go, this final month and nine days could go, that are pretty drastically different. And it just it makes it interesting from the fact that I can't remember a year where you weren't totally sure what was going to happen, maybe dating all the way back to like uh, the first you know couple of years that uh, we were in this job. You started a year before uh, I did with with the Pacers in producing, but you might have to go back to like 14, 15, 15, 16 to when you really weren't sure how the final month of the season was going to go and what um, that next couple of weeks might look like. But it just strikes me that there are so many different avenues this season could still take. And it is why I do love March in the NBA in early April. And I like checking the standings and following things. And I do want to kind of end with something that Rick Carlisle said. I give Rick a lot of credit because I think, all of his media availabilities, my pregame interview as well. I don't get a lot of a lot of coach speak. I think it's he answers questions pretty honestly, and things that he says can can kind of shape what I'm thinking about teams, or maybe they back up what I'm seeing in a, in a practice or in a game session, and you know it just adds some credence to what is happening. And what he said last night was, you know, and asked about the the late game both the success and, and holding off the Mavericks, maybe the, the issues offensively. He said, as a young team, we can't get enough of these experiences and opportunities. And what did you think back in September? What did you want to see from this team? You wanted to see growth. You wanted to see them experience things that could eventually pay off down the line. 
You're not going to win every close game over the over the next 19. But think of all the different experiences that this team has had, the times they've been able to play a close game. And, um, you know, to, to, to go get that win in Dallas, it's one win instead of a loss. And who knows whether it will be that impactful in the standings. But all of the experiences are going to help this team moving forward into the future. And so that's what I continue to watch over the final 19 now. I'll be paying attention a little bit to the standings, even though I think we all probably understand whatever ends up happening, it will be okay. Other than I just, as I said earlier, I don't really want the season to end. So I'd like to see basketball after uh, April 9th or whatever that game is in, in New York. However, I do want to continue to see these experiences that can help the team not only uh, grow moving forward, but also help the front office learn about specific players that can be a part of this and to see that team culture continued um, to be reshaped by the staff. It, it's been a great thing. So we didn't get to have a podcast last week, Pat. We didn't really uh, recap all of All-Star, but I think that's kind of enough in the rearview mirror. Our All-Star discussions should be more about the excitement, I think, moving forward of the next 12 months and getting to host. But I think that it's been a good return from the break. I think the team's energized. Uh, they are healthy, knock on wood. And they're they're playing with some more confidence. And you have to win to kind of get that confidence back. So to win three of four, to win two straight road games, and they're in a position to uh, – if you go on a four-game road trip and you, you can win three, great. If you have a chance to win four, that's still possible. That would be phenomenal. And it would set them up to one of these – hey, why not us kind of finishes towards the season. So it, I love it when uh, the games mean something, and I think they mean something right now. Yeah, when you looked at the four-game road trip, I kind of saw it as the Dallas one is going to be really, really tough, and then you'd like to get the San Antonio game. And then the other two, uh, Chicago's going to be difficult. The Pacers have beaten them the last two times, and the Bulls are playing much better since then, albeit also in a short sample, small sample size. Uh, in Orlando, playing really well, too, at home. So uh, I, I thought 2-2 two and two was the goal on this road trip, and you're 2-0 and zero with a game coming up against San Antonio that you feel like you should win. So uh, they are on the verge of, with one more complete effort, already surpassing that goal. And I think maybe we'll close out the podcast here, and we'll do this for the next handful of weeks, is just looking at where the Pacers are in the playoff chase. And I was asked by our, I, I do a weekly call with our Muncie affiliate and it was, what should Pacers fans be rooting for? Should they be rooting for a rousing finish to the year and getting in the play in tournament and maybe, um, you know, making even some noise in the play in tournament and, and being a, a dangerous young team in the playoffs? Should Pacers fans be rooting for zero more wins and to get the highest amount of lottery balls possible? And look, I understand where you could fall in any of those camps. And I think we had this discussion a lot last year. And frankly, I'm glad we're not having it as much this year because the on-court product has been improved. But, you know, you're a fan and you're allowed to root for whatever you want to root for because everybody wants the Pacers ultimately uh, in the future to win more games. But there are multiple avenues uh, that can lead to that. And if the Pacers do get hot here down the stretch – Rick Carlisle has always already said numerous times that his goal, um, you know, is development here down the stretch. So if the Pacers do play well in these final 19 games, it's going to be because Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin. And look, we didn't even get the chance to talk about Jordan Wara or Jalen Smith, who absolutely are deserving of, of discussion on a on a outlet like this. Those two have been great in their last two games and coming in from very unique situations. Uh, it's going to be because you're young guys and the guys are trying to figure out what you have played well. And and ultimately, if that's the case, this is 
a huge part of your core that you're building around for future seasons. I just can't imagine that happening um, and thinking it's a bad thing. You know, Tyrese Halliburton, regardless of what happens in this draft, unless the Pacers were to hit, you know, the ultimate lottery ping pong ball there, um, are probably building around Tyrese Halliburton first and foremost. So if he plays well down the stretch, it's a good thing. And I expect him to play well down the stretch. As we're talking, the Pacers are two games out of that 10th spot. Chicago is in between. So not only do they have to catch up with what right now would be Washington, uh, but they have to pass Chicago, which means they have to have a better record uh, than uh, Chicago and Washington to even talk about that play-in spot. And we do know if you're in 10th, you have to win two road games. So it's a very difficult task, even if you can get there. So the the picture of where things stand now, I think, could probably be summarized as the Pacers are looking, at least lately, a lot more like the team in the first half of the season that had themselves squarely in the playoff hunt. But because of that recent stretch, right now, it's still very much an uphill climb. The Pacers have a ton of work to do, and it's going to take a lot more than a pretty strong last four games to get there. But at least with these four games, I will tell you, I was a little concerned that this road trip would go poorly. And if you go something like zero and four or one and three on it, then you're maybe already starting to um, look toward next season. That's not the case. The Pacers have bought themselves some more time, but we're going to need probably a couple more podcasts where we're coming to you on Tuesday um, feeling pretty good about the week previously. So that's where the Pacers stand, JJ. You are in San Antonio. We appreciate you joining us as always. Any final thoughts from you? I know you're about to head out to practice right now. Nope. I uh, just appreciate all the Pacers fans. And uh, while you were talking there, I did kind of scroll through Twitter, some really good tributes and, and videos uh, uh, on David Benner. So I wanted to keep him and his family in our thoughts on, on this Wednesday. I know our digital team is compiling a lot of, um, people of significance and VIPs and their commentary um, toward David Benner and what he meant to them. And I think it's moving. And if you're somebody listening to this and that name doesn't really ring a bell, I, I know our digital team will be doing something with those compilation of tweets and videos and messages. But I urge you to search David Benner, whether it's in social media um, or whether it's in Google. Um, I saw ESPN had an article that went up as we were talking um, a really important man and a good man to this franchise passed away here on a Wednesday. And as you say, our thoughts, our prayers are with the family and everybody who knew um, David Benner closely. That'll wrap it up for this week's edition of the Sideline Guys, powered by Gainbridge. For JJ, I'm Pat. We'll talk to you next week.